You're listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast in Kingsport, Tennessee. We are a community committed to prayer, radical hospitality, and intentional invitation. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. On account of his vast mercy, he has given us new birth. You have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish, an inheritance that is presently kept safe in heaven for you. Through his faithfulness, you are guarded by, power, by God's power so that you can receive the salvation he is ready to reveal in the last time. You now rejoice in this hope, even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which will be destroyed even though it, it's, it is itself tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't know him, you don't see him now, you trust him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. You are receiving the goal of your faith, your salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to focus on those, that specific passage today, verse 8. Although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you trust him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. I think that verse pairs perfectly with the story that Ashley read for us today from John, talking about the disciples cowering in fear, but Jesus appearing, but Thomas not being there, and later saying, I need to see his wounds, I need to touch them in order to believe, and Jesus appearing and giving that to Thomas. I think those two different uh, parts of the Bible relate to each other quite well. So I, when I was thinking about, the, about this, I thought of a couple of years ago when Ashley and I were taking a vacation. We were, we were actually going to go to London and visit uh, Tom and Karen's daughter, and who was staying there with her husband, Brendan, and Caroline and Brendan. And along the way, we decided we were going to stop a few days in Iceland. And we took, uh, Iceland has their own airline, Iceland Air. It's kind of funny. You take a little short hop, you land in Reykjavik, and then you fly on to London. We were like, hey, we're in Iceland. Let's stay there for a little bit. And there was this funny thing. They kept putting like facts about Iceland. You remember this on the TV, a little TV? And one of the things was it related to this 1999 study they did of the people of Iceland. And it's funny because they did this in 1999, but they followed this up a few years ago and found that the numbers are relatively the same. And here's what they found. 54.4% of Icelanders believe in the existence of elves. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I read this study. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean all 54% say, yes, there are elves, but it says at the very least that 54.4% of them say, mm, probably. And if you told me you had one in your backyard, I'd believe you. And I thought that is so strange. But then I read a little more about this, and I realized that like their belief or openness to the belief in elves has led to all sorts of strange policies and behaviors. So here's a couple of these. In March 23rd, 1982, Iceland's elf believers marched to the protest of NATO. 
because some uh, NATO planes were being held there in the Iceland Reykjavik airport. And so 140, uh, 150 people boarded buses in Keflavik, Iceland, and searched for the elves who, and this is the quote, might be endangered by American phantom jets and AWACS over Iceland. So what happened? A lot of really angry Icelanders trying to find the elves that could be harmed by the presence of these planes. In the 1930s, the Icelandic government wanted to try to connect, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin this name, Copacavur to Reykjavik. These are two of the larger cities. They're about nine miles apart there in Iceland. And the plans for the road were drawn up and they were supposed to go through this area and there was a large rock in the middle of it named Alfhall, which literally meant Elf Hill. But in the process of removing the rock, the construction company ran out of funds and ceased construction. And so decades later, they had this half-finished road, and they said, you know what, we need to finish this. They start doing it, and the roads and the tools begin breaking, and nothing works, and they abandon the plans again. And so by 1980, 50 years later, you still have this uncompleted road. And so they tried again. And the tools began to act up, and the workers began to refuse to go near the rock. Local TV uh, said they tried to go and report on this, but their cameras quit working. And so if you were to officially ask the Icelandic Road Administration to this day, they have a stock email, a stock statement that they say, what's your opinion on elves in Alfhall? It's this. It will not answer the question of whether the Icelandic Road and Coastal Commission employees do or do not believe in elves and hidden people because opinions differ greatly on this. It tends to be a rather personal matter. Issues have been settled by delaying construction projects so that elves can, at a certain point, move on. The road was eventually finished but the rock is still there and they rooted it around and they rooted the road around so the elves could remain. This one's my favorite one. In January of 2010, a former member of the Icelandic parliament whose name was Arnie Johnson was driving on an isolated, icy, desolate road in southwest Iceland and he lost control of his SUV. His vehicle went careening off a cliff, it overturned, and it came to rest on a 30, it came to rest near this 30-ton boulder that was about 130 feet away from the highway. And it was his belief that there was a family of elves that lived in that boulder, and they saved his life. And so even though his SUV was completely destroyed, he was completely unharmed. And so a few years later, when a road was planned that required that 30-ton boulder to be removed... Mr. Johnson brought an elves specialist to the rock. And Mr. Johnson later reported that the elves specialist found this. She said it was incredible that she had never met three generations of elves that lived in the same boulder before. Mr. Johnson asked the elf specialist to ask the elves if they would be okay with the road planners moving the boulder. And so she came back and said this. This was the elves' reply. One... The boulder must be moved to grass so the elves could have sheep. Two, the window side of the boulder must face the ocean. And so, Mr. Johnson found these terms agreeable, and he personally arranged to have the rock moved 
all 30 tons of it to a location near Johnson's home via a ferry. <laughs> Later, the government, in a similar situation, spent millions of dollars to move a 50-ton boulder to a scenic place because it believed, they believed that it was a church for elves. I think if enough time passes and you're in the right perspective, we could probably view some of the claims of Christianity in a similar light. After all, we're a religion born out of Judaism with a couple dozen letters by early followers as our guide. We're relying on the eyewitness accounts of a handful of fishermen and social outcasts. And we are receiving a faith, we are inheriting, as scripture says to us, a faith that's the result of 20 and 30 generations worth of the game that I used to play in grade school called Telephone. Did you ever play that game? You told students at one end of class, you'd whisper a secret in there and they had to teach it, to tell it to the next kid, and by the end it had nothing to do with what it was originally meant to say. And I think from a certain perspective, you could be incredibly skeptical and look at our faith and say, that's what it is. This is this giant religious game of telephone. It doesn't make sense. Where is the proof? We generally trust stories told to us by someone we love who claims to have witnessed this. If Ashley told me that we had a group of black bears in our courtyard having tea, I wouldn't believe her for a little bit. But if she was persistent and really believed it, I think I would come to believe that. I think over time I could eventually get my daughter as she gets older to believe this actually happened and vouch for that story to her children. But as generations pass, that story would become harder and harder to believe and less about whether it happened or not and maybe just a weird, strange story about their crazy cousin, their crazy relative, Ashley. <laughs> So for many people, let's be honest, I think that's why faith is a struggle. It seems like faith and doubt or this need for proof is locked into this eternal struggle for many of us. So when we read that story of Thomas needing to touch the wounds and scars of Jesus, personally, I completely understand he knows what he needs. He needs evidence. And so do the other disciples, for that matter. Look at the story. The word of the women that come back and tell the disciples, it's not enough for them because they were still sitting in fear until Jesus appeared. And then the disciples' words was not enough for Thomas. He was gone. If you're going to tell me something as unnatural as a man returning from the dead happened, I need to see that man. I need to touch that man. I need to be in his presence. I need to see him eat. I need to hear him talk. There needs to be no doubt left in my mind. So I think we need to rename Thomas. He shouldn't be called Doubting Thomas. I think he needs to be Evidenced Faith, Evidence-Based Faith Decisions Thomas. Or Peer Reviewed Journal Thomas. Or validated double-blind study, Thomas. I think that's probably a more appropriate name for this day and age. His desire to have more proof, 
more evidence is a completely normal desire. If you find yourself having that desire, that is normal. The longing for evidence is not the special burden of believers in this age of science. It's not unique just to us. It's clear we can look back then and see that this desire for more burden, for more evidence, was something that all generations dealt with. Whatever stage of faith we might find ourselves in, it's fair to assume that there's a major part of ourselves that desires, needs more proof, more evidence. For me, I think we feel it every time we encounter someone who seems very sure of their faith or very confident in their beliefs. We have this twinge in our soul and say, man, why don't I feel that way? There must be something wrong. Why don't I act like that? I'm just riddled with doubt or questions. And I think one of the biggest acts of spiritual violence we can do to one another is when we chastise or criticize or marginalize someone because they can't force themselves to believe something that you believe or that others believe. I really mean that. I think that's a spiritual act of violence. If, you, if someone cannot, in their own good faith, believe these things, for us to marginalize them and criticize them, that is an act of spiritual violence. Our faith is something that has been handed down to us. It has been inherited. It has traveled generations and continents to be here with us. But that doesn't mean it's something that we just easily embrace. Christianity is an experiential faith. Sacred experiences for us, that's our evidence. It's the best we have. One commentator in my study this week pointed out this little line in that story from Thomas that I thought was so unique, and I'd missed it for years. Jesus, when he says this, he's replying to Thomas's confession of faith when he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And this is what Jesus says. He says, do you believe because you see me? Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Did you catch that? That language is unique. Jesus is here at the end of his time on earth, and he's, it's almost like he's adding another category to the Beatitudes. We previously heard, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the persecuted. But now, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. I don't know if I've ever thought that was a blessing. Haven't you ever wondered, you know, what what it was like to be one of those early apostles, to have seen the miracles, to have seen the resurrection, to have seen the world change in front of your eyes? I'm pretty sure the poor and the hungry and the persecuted didn't think that they were blessed when they were experiencing those things. They might have heard Jesus' words and say, hmm? But the key to understanding things like the Beatitudes is learning that each one of these unique situations exposes something powerful about the nature of faith. To be be poor in spirit means to be broken, broken down with everything stripped away from your life. And there in that moment, 
You're blessed because you realize that your faith in God is more valuable and more essential to your identity than anything else you could conceive. So that's why we can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they understand that truth more than the rest of us. Hunger and thirst for righteousness means living a faith where you never receive justice or right treatment. In that moment, you realize how the fair treatment of others and your role in that is an essential component of life. A perspective most others probably don't fully understand. So here we are, those who must live a life of faith without ever seeing, touching, or being near the one we love and profess to believe in. So how are we blessed? Over the years, I've had the pleasure of working with many couples as they are preparing for marriage. I've conducted hundreds of sessions of premarital counseling, and I can tell you from experience, very few things worry me more than a couple telling me we never fight. What worries to me isn't that they're lying to me. What worries to me is that I think they're lying to themselves and have an unrealistic view of their potential spouse. I love my wife more than I thought was humanly possible. And maybe there was a period of time I would have said, we don't fight. But now throw us in a hot car with a cranky toddler. (laughs) (laughs) On a road trip when we're running short on time, unclear of directions, boom. I worry that couples that say they never fight or struggle with communication don't really know themselves or or each other very well. Conflict, doubt, frustration, impatience, disagreements all have a way of revealing the possibility for deeper intimacy when we handle them graciously and generously. So I think it's from that viewpoint where I hear the words of Jesus and I read from that passage in 1 Peter and affirm, yes, yes, we are blessed. Yes, although we've never seen him, we love him. Even though we don't see him now, we trust him. And so rejoice with a glorious joy that's too much for words. Because we must live a life of faith where sacred experiences that twinge in our heart in a moment of worship, that change in our mind in a moment of compassion. Because we must live with that life, I think it instills with us a restlessness. St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. This way of living out our faith gives us a longing for more. It presents us with an opportunity like Jacob and the angelic figure in the Old Testament to wrestle with God and search for a resolution of our doubts. The tradition of St. Thomas the Apostle, doubting evidence-based Thomas, it's fascinating. Tradition says that most of the disciples eventually headed west and south to share their faith with the nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea and down into Africa. But Thomas 
took Christianity east to India, where he remained until his death. Thomas's doubts and need for more proof drove him to find that proof. Jesus gave him that proof, which propelled him to courageous acts of faith. So let's pay attention to Jesus' response. He didn't chastise him. He gave him what he needed to sustain his faith. And so perhaps ultimately that is our good news today. That ours is a savior who understands our needs and responds to us and says, reach out and touch. He offers himself to us. So if there was ever a Sunday where I feel like we need to respond, where we need to respond by doing something physical, I think this is it. So we're going to end our sermon time with a special prayer this morning. And it's a prayer you're going to need to use your bodies a little bit to do. It's pretty simple. You're just going to need your arms and your hands. And I encourage you to hold them out in front of you. Not, not high, just kind of in your lap. And if you would, you close your eyes and I'll guide you through this prayer, these actions that we'll do together. God, we have so many things that weigh us down. We have doubts, we have frustrations, we have burdens, we have stresses, and we place them into our hands now. And we close our hands around them and hold them tight. God, it is our deepest desire to hand them over to you today. And so, God, we turn our hands over and we drop them. We release them. And now we set with our hands open with our palms facing the sky. And this is where we ask God to reach out and touch. This is where we ask God to give us what we need. Our hands are waiting to receive your blessing. So God, some of us need a word of peace spoken to us. We need your spirit to say to our soul, be still, know that I am God. Some of us need a righteous cause placed in our hands, someone to love, a marginalized people to care for, a cause to fight for. Many of us today, Lord, need like Thomas, just to know you are there. To know you are real.
So fill us up, Lord, so that we might be sent out to be your people of peace, so that we might be sent out to be your scarred body for this world, to serve others, to be your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. For more information about our faith community, visit us online at chpres.org.